1: Rate with service on the Visible Plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: If you said Tanahasi, is it your expectation that black people in this country will, for the rest of this country's history, occupy some sort of lower rung in the hierarchy? It's not my expectation, but I wouldn't be surprised if it happened.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am uh, trying to figure out how to do the intro for this one. Uh, I sat down with Tanasi Coats, Coates, uh, who I've talked with before on this podcast and, and who's a friend. His new book is We Were Eight Years in Power. It's a strange book, actually. I really, really, really recommend it. But it is a collection of his major Atlantic piece, from each of eight years of the Obama presidency connected together with autobiographical essays of how his thinking was changing, of how his writing was changing, of how his life was changing, of how the country was changing. It's an autobiography through journalism. Uh, It's strange. I've never read a book uh, structured like this before, and and it works. Coates is someone who I think has something that very few writers, very few commentators have today, which is like a genuine philosophy, um like a perspective on the world that is different than the perspective other people have. And that can be controversial. It can make him him also feel oracular. I mean, it is behind his success, it is behind criticism but it's there, and, and seeing him unearth it, seeing him pull up the iceberg so you can see what was happening underneath, seeing him go back to old pieces and say, I don't believe this anymore, or I don't think I got this one right. This is why I did it this way, but, 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 but I don't buy it now. There's a, a version of talking about Coates, and, and he does this too, where it, it focuses on a kind of pessimism on his unwillingness to to give people easy hope, to say things are going to get better, to say that America is going to move past its racial wounds. Reading this book, talking to him here today, it helped me understand what that means for him and the ways in which he, and I think members of the political system, in the media, in, in actual politics, end up talking past each other. This is a conversation about, particularly in the back half of it, About some of the really, really core themes of his work. What would equality mean? What would it mean for America to not be a society that reflects white supremacy? What does justice mean? Does justice come along with equality? Are they opposed? Can you have racial justice in this country under this kind of economic system? Ta-Nehisi Coates is always great to talk to. He's always brilliant and interesting. And, you know, you don't have to agree with everything he says to learn a tremendous amount from him. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun to to talk with him, but it always leaves me somber. Um, he says at the end of this interview, that was depressing. And, and I know that it's depressing, but I think that we do a lot to try to turn away from the pain in our country, because it's easier. I think we do a lot to try to tell ourselves an optimistic story because it's better. I think we do a lot to protect ourselves from how thin the foundation upon which our progress rests really is because we need that. Because to really, really live with a sense of the chaos at the door is just too hard. But it's bracing sometimes to think a bit about the chaos at the door. It's bracing sometimes to step back and look at it another way, not in a way that denies what good has happened, what good is happening, but that also doesn't deny what ill has happened and what ill could happen. So without further ado, here's Tanasi Coates. Tanasi Coates, welcome
2: back. Thanks for having me back, Ezra.
0: <laughs> there's too much to talk about. I, I'm literally staring at my notes here, and I actually <laughs> don't know where to start.
2: I, I Actually, there's
0: a line in the book that, that I did want to begin with that was actually about you, and it's something I think about a lot, where you wrote that it's important to remember the inconsequence of one's talent and hard work and the incredible and unmatched sway of of, of luck and fate, I think it's easy for folks to to look at you, you're an incredible writer, you're, you're get compared to James Baldwin, and assume that that has to be inevitable. What do you mean saying that it's actually luck and it's actually fate?
2: Well, Between the World and Me was published when I was 40 years old. Um, I had been writing for uh, 20 years before that. Um, for the first half of that, And for most of, you know, I would say for the first 12 years of of my career, you know, I I had great difficulty uh, making a living. I had great difficulty uh, placing my articles. I had great difficulty convincing anyone who wasn't related to me or wasn't uh, David Carr, uh, Daily Pass, David Carr, who used to be at the New York Times, that what I was doing was worthy of anything. It was a really, really hard thing to do. And I am well aware that that could have continued for the rest of my life. Um, there's no reason why that couldn't have continued for, for the rest of my life. Um, what happened, and this is the story I try to tell in the book, is that a Black president was elected and suddenly people were interested in a way that they weren't before. Um, if I am talented now, um, I was talented before. If I'm smart now, I was smart before. Now, I know more now. I probably write better now. Um, maybe a better reporter now, but that's because of the opportunities I was given in the interim. It, it's not hard for me to see my life uh, going a different way because it was going a different way. Um, and most of the things that, you know, characterize at least my life at home right now, uh, my relationship uh, to my wife, my child, all of that was already in place. Um, and so it's a bit different than like when success hits you and, and you're and you're in your twenties or something like that. I, I was a formed person uh, when, when all of this happened, and it was it's really easy for me to, to see this taking another path because it was going down another
0: path. The the thing that I think I respond to in that because you also write about how um, the classroom was not a great place for you. You write that it was at the site of your your most indelible failures. I also did really badly in school and had just sort of failed at everything until I was, you know, like 17 maybe. 17 Mm -hmm. is sort of the first point where I can look back at myself and say, actually, you did a couple things right there. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, And there's something about that feeling of like really knowing you can fail. Like really knowing that you can mm-hmm. be a person who exists mm-hmm. in a state of failure with the people mm-hmm. around you existing in a state of disappointment towards mm-hmm. you. And mm-hmm. you can just sustain that way for year after year after year. I always feel that I got saved by blogging. That um, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. that hadn't come along, I mean, I got rejected from the school paper. If that hadn't come along, I don't mm-hmm. think I would have made it into journalism. I'm sure I mm-hmm. wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And I could have just failed at other things the way I'd failed at school before that. Yeah, I, th- I think, I think right. there's something powerful about that.
2: Yeah, no, and just chastening, you know? And I, I would argue, too, that in the same way, blogging probably saved me, too, because what it did was... It, what blogging removed was the need to pitch people to show them that you were any good. You had your own territory to make that own case, and then, you know, people could actually see and then decide, you know, how how they felt about it. People are often nostalgic for this era of gatekeepers, but I'm not, um, because I wouldn't have been anywhere uh, if things had remained as they were technologically. Um, but but to your point, I, I think it's... um. I just think it's deeply chastening, you know? It just reminds you. And it also, um, I grew up in a community where there were plenty of people around me who were smarter than me, you know? They just <laughs> they just were, you know? Uh, there were plenty of people around me who uh, were better students than I than I was. There were plenty of people who, you know, made more right decisions than I did. Um, is my level of, of prominence, you know, compared to theirs, you know, attributable to something innate in me? No, no, I, I think our conditions change. And some people are appropriate in certain conditions and they, and they benefit.
0: But one thing that that is interesting about the condition in which you became appropriate, you you say, you know, the, the Obama's, their existence opened a market. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those things that I think is, is interesting and, and under notice the way that what we are interested in as a country, as a culture actually changes around who is in charge, what kinds of things we want to see written about and thought about. Um, It it, it's fascinating to me that the Obamas, as you write, they sort of exploded a market for journalists who focused on on race, on communities of color, on race and politics. And that Trump has like literally done the opposite. He's exploded a market for journalism that focuses on whites, on Mm -hmm. white working class folks, you know, who still like Donald Trump. I mean, if you are good at reporting on rural areas of Mississippi or Missouri or West Virginia. You know, there is a market now that didn't exist eight years ago uh, for you. And that's like one of these downstream consequences of of presidencies that I don't think people think about very much. But it, it feels important in terms of which questions we move to the top of the priority list in American life. Like, that's a real kind of power and privilege.
2: Yeah, and it might be the only good thing to come out of a Trump presidency. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm happy, you know, I'm happy for those reporters going out and getting those jobs to tell. Because I'm sure as sure as I was, you know, stewing before Barack Obama with all these stories I, I wanted to tell, I'm sure there were reporters that, you know, felt like, listen, this opioid ep- epidemic, we're really not getting the cold country. There's some things going on here that we're really, really not getting to. And so um, I know I've been arguing against this, uh, you know, this um the way in which the white working class is being deployed. But I, I don't know that... I, I would never want to feel like I'm in the position of saying that the very fact that people are out there doing that reporting is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I think that market is a good thing.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, but I, I do think there's a way in which we can be a little... I think there is a zero-sumness hmm. to tension in American mm-hmm. life that is more important than we like to give it credit for Hmm. and that contributes to different forms of conflict between groups. Hmm. I mean, it really is the case that that different groups have different interests, and I don't just mean racial groups here, and that attention on one group's priorities actually does mean less attention on on another group's priorities, Hmm. and that there there really is some kind of of battle there. And so when, I don't know, there's a view that, you can just sort of hit the politics just right. And like nobody ever loses. Everything is positive sum. But this stuff does feel more zero sum to me in some ways. Um, and, and and that's one of them. You know, who's there there seems to me in ways that I don't really fully understand why, but but it does seem true, there seems to me to be a limited amount of sympathy in American life. And who is getting it and who is getting the attention for for their issues. There is a trade-off
2: there. Yeah, and how much of that is living in a very real uh, market economy? Yeah, you know, like yep. the very fact of living in a in a in a, in a, in a capitalist economy. I'm asking that as a question because I don't I don't know that it would be any any different otherwise. Because what we might really be talking about ultimately is power. But at least you know that there's this notion you know, within the economy, within a capitalist economy of winners and losers. You know, some people are going to win. You know what I mean? Some people are going to lose. It's the striking thing about um, any sort of conversation, uh, and, I, and I've tried to actually take this seriously, but whenever you start talking about race, and this was true during Obama's presidency, one of the retorts from a certain group of people was always, you know, well, if he gets X, Y, and Z, he's going to empower a bunch of Black people. There was this, this thing that if Obama won, a certain kind of white person would necessarily lose, okay? So this is like something like, say, a Stephen, a Steve King from Iowa, you know, has said before. Um, but, you know, George Packer, in some of his early reporting in, in in West Virginia, you know, came across some of the, you know, in, in 2008, some sort of very, very, from the same commentary. And I've tried to think a lot about, like, what that means, like, what is actually lost. And... I've often, well, I think part of it is like the election of Barack Obama is one step closer to white people losing their name. One one step closer to, to um, even if it's not a big step, <laughs> but still one step closer to the idea of white not meaning anything. And so in that sense, maybe there really is a loss, you know? Oh, I think that, so,
0: <laughs> all right, this is something that I'm working out. So I'm worried it's going to come out wrong. And. That's just going to be how it is. Right. I think that we use economics to sanitize cultural and other kinds of opinions and grievances. Mm. Mm. A critique I have of a lot of the way the election gets told is that we go to people who are feeling real loss. And we can't quite find the loss in a way that explains itself through sort of statistics, right? Which I'll say you always should. Life is more than statistics. But, you know, Donald Trump, for all their issues in the economy, got elected at a time when GDP growth was pretty good. Unemployment was under 5%. Um, you know, there we were seeing actually wage gains in 2015 and 2016. Now, I am not saying the economy was great, but Donald Trump didn't happen in 2012. He happened in 2016. Like, you have to, you have to explain change. Mm-hmm. There are always terrible things happening in the economy. But what did happen in, over those period was there had been an African-American president and there was a, a controversial woman running for president. And people come out and they say, you know, I feel like things aren't getting better. They're not getting better for me and my children. There's something wrong here. I feel like I'm losing something. And sometimes they'll say it really explicitly racially, like in that early mm-hmm. Packer stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we go searching, for like the 17th economic statistic down <laughs> that explains it. Like, I really did see these studies yeah, yeah. that came out. It's like, okay, you it's can't true. explain Trump an income. True. You can't explain him a wealth. They would go down all the normal things you would yeah. look at and they'd be like, yeah, but if you look at people's expectations right. about what's going to happen to their, and it's like, okay, <laughs> but like that's that's overfitting your data. Yeah. And I do think there's something very real about losing status. And we just, we we are so uncomfortable Talking about that clearly, that we really want to say it's about income.
2: Yeah. Even I mean, if income it,
0: wouldn't solve it.
2: I mean, for maybe me, it would like, help, but. For, for like me, like when I saw that um, the notion of working class would no longer be income, it would be education. Yeah. Uh, because it's very disturbing uh, if you actually compare what working class life looks like for the white working class and what it looks like for everybody else, um, the differences. Um, but implicit in that, you know, I I thought, you know, was an inability to deal with the fact that, well, you have a group of people who at least compared, I'm not saying everything's great. I'm not saying there aren't real problems, but from an income perspective, are not poor, you know, are are not, you know, wanting and certainly are not poor and wanting in the way that, you know, if you looked for corollaries in the the black community, you you would find. So, So then what explains it? Aha, let's talk about education then. That, that'll 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 get us uh, you know away from that you know from the very very difficult question of how can it be that you know somebody's who's earning 70 eighty thousand a year you know that's the family's take you know that that, that Trump is finding a, a base here seventy eighty thousand dollars uh for families a lot of money if you're black if you're black and say in a city like Baltimore where, where I grew up you know um it's it's a huge huge difference. You know, and so having to explain that, I think, you know, people change... It's awful to, to think about. It's awful to think about resentment as a real thing, like as an actual thing, as an and as a strong, you know, force that can be manipulated and used. Um, I think it raises difficult questions about democracy itself.
0: But I think you look at the Obama years, and there was not a lot of racial redistribution of resources. Right. You cannot, I think, effectively look at the end of the Obama years and say... Well, the economic condition of non-whites was dramatically different comparatively to whites to where, where it was at the beginning. But I think you can look and say, in terms of cultural influence, Mm -hmm. in terms of cultural power, representation Mm -hmm. on television, there's an Mm African-American president, Jay-Z and Beyonce are these like Mm -hmm. sainted cultural Mm -hmm. figures. Chris Rock is hosting the Oscars and lecturing you about um, implicit bias. Mm -hmm. Like there was a kind of redistribution of power. It just wasn't primarily economic power. And people reacted to that redistribution. And then Hillary Clinton, I think, came and ran on that redistribution way more explicitly. Because Barack Obama had had this sort of almost spiritual connection with his own coalition, which, you know, you write about this a lot, allowed him to be a lot more conservative actually. Conservative in the way he approached, he certainly in the way he talked about this stuff. Clinton had to be much more explicit trying to she hold did. the coalition together. And so then, you know, you have a real reaction against it. And I just don't think that redistribution of power is fake. I just think yeah. we don't know how to talk about it.
2: Yeah, no. But what you say about Clinton is very interesting because what you then had is a marriage of running on that, as you said, redistribution redistribution of cultural power, but also like uh, having to be explicit about you know race. Also, you understand? So not the Obama trick where okay, we kind of hide, you know, this, this cultural power thing is happening, but you know, being able to be a, a bit more closeted. When it when it when it came to race, I think that's that's clear and 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 it's true. But I also think like that cultural power may well have economic consequences. Again, like I look at my own life and I see myself as a as a as a you know a very real uh, response to that. I was talking to um, Barry Jenkins who made made Moonlight about this, and you know he sees himself and his opportunities as as connected to that. I do think that seeing you know African Americans in prominent spaces because what we're really talking about is is uh this the apex of something that's been happening since the 1960s has some effect on young people who are growing up. It's not enough you know it it won't in and of itself and you know uh dis, you know uh, uh, close the, the the wealth chasm between black and white America, but you know if it meant something before. That everybody of prominence was white, that all your presidents were white, that all everybody who, you know, got the platform in terms of popular culture was white. This shift has to mean something. I mean, it's, it's worth flipping the question. Did the culture itself in some way cede the ground for Barack Obama, for instance? Because the culture was already there. You're right. I mean, Obama leaned into it in a particular way. But, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce date back to the 90s. You know, uh, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan. I'm not saying these guys were revolutionaries or anything, but they were black people that that certainly occupied a kind of space within the cultural firmament. Did, did all of that, that actual cultural movement, have some sort of effect that made Barack Obama possible?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's completely right. Um, you know, I, this is a very small example, and it's not even really about this, but my wife was watching The O.C. recently, just like saying that, I come from Orange County. Orange County is a super diverse place.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's just a show about white people in a way you could mm-hmm. not do now. Like if see, you I thought, made,
2: I thought Orange County wasn't diverse because of those. See,
0: <laughs> yeah, Orange County is like the community I lived in was very, very heavily Asian and Hispanic. I mean, Orange County is very heavily Hispanic. Yeah, it's wild, and you could not do that today. I mean, mm. it, you you wouldn't you wouldn't right. you wouldn't make it through Twitter. Like, right. your show wouldn't right. survive. Right. And, like, right. that's actually a real power thing right there. That's right. a change. But right. so one thing that I do think is tough for this argument, um, and this is something that in in his response to uh, the first white president, to your piece on Trump, Packer wrote, but other people have said this, too, that, you know, Trump gets slightly fewer white votes than Romney as an absolute total, slightly more, it seems, like black and Latino voters, maybe. I mean, exit polls are a little wonky at that level of specificity but but that seems possible there is this tendency to tell this story of like this real pivot in american voting coalitions and 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 attitudes in 2016 that you know i don't know does that story really match up with what we saw with trump
2: yeah, I think it does. And um I think George is making a, a mistake that a lot of people make, and that is uh, viewing Trump and Romney in in the abstract as as equal Republican candidates. And I know there's great power in terms of what party ID is. But Donald Trump, he got slightly less votes than Romney in total. But he wasn't Romney. I mean, he was a guy who had been recorded on tape, you know, bragging about sexual assault. This is a guy who rejected uh, uh, a judge who was hearing one of his case explicit. He said this because he was a Mexican. Who was? not was American. Because he was, he, he was a Mexican. This was the language he actually used. Encouraged violence at his rallies. There were red lines all over the place. People said, this is it. This is going to sink Donald Trump. So I think, like, you can't get past the fact that he was able to do all those things and only do slightly worse than Mitt Romney. I mean, we don't consider those gaffes because he because he won. But uh, had he not won, you would have a list of gaffes. You know what I mean? That, you know, you would, that, that certainly people at the time thought would sink a presidency. So, so you know, the fact that he got, you know, that, that Mitt Romney did, you know, better than him. I mean, that, that, that presumed that they're equal. That Mitt Romney ran twice. Do you understand? But Mitt Romney, you know, and Donald Trump are not the same. I
0: think what people are saying when they say this, though, and I, I've heard it constructed this way pretty explicitly is it if Donald Trump were truly as racist or bigoted or even just racially controversial, as his critics say he is, then his support among Black and Latino voters would have cratered in a way that it didn't. The idea that it could be close to Romney, like, isn't that the evidence that, that, that you know, the left is making too much of this?
2: No, 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 it's not the evidence. Because the first thing is Romney was running against uh, Barack Obama. That's the first thing. Now, I can't speak to the, the the Latino vote. I mean, somebody else can, you know, analyze that. But I know for the Black vote, it, it, it's it's clearly pretty obvious. In fact, what I would want to see is patterns across the past twenty years that did not just include, you know, the first Black president running for his first and second term, Um because that's different. I would want to compare him uh, uh, uh to other Republican candidates across the the past um, the past few years and see how Trump. uh See how Trump managed in, in that sort of way. But I certainly don't think um, you can use uh, uh, Barack Obama's campaigns, two campaigns, as, as an app comparison.
0: Yeah, that 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 does seem fair to me. One of the, the pieces of this that I think is tough, though, is—and I, I see it a little bit in your book. It's one of the things that gave me some pause reading. Um, I think that we have a tendency in this country to look at any election and then frame it in the way we talk about it as, like, the country delivering its verdict— we talk about mm. the country after elections as a singular entity. Mm-hmm. You you have a language of like this country quite a bit mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and everybody does this. I mean, I remember Barack Obama won. And, you know, there were these things about, you know, the country has shown itself to be a center-left country. Mm-hmm. And you have these like real close election. And I mean, Donald Trump, it's, you know, like a whisker um, on a Could've cat, lost. you know. Could have lost. Could um, have lost. I think you run that election, you know, in the way that Nate can, and his models 5,000 times, and, you know, mm-hmm. Trump loses 3,000 of them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like really, it's a weird—it's the day and how close it is to Comey. It's all this shit. And I don't know. I, I think that the tendency to sort of look at it and say, well, now we can say something about the country, particularly in these close elections— I don't know how to talk about it because obviously you want to be able to say something about America. You have got to be able to speak about nation states as entities, mm-hmm. and yet, how do you do that when the winner of the election lost the popular vote is incredibly unpopular? Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you how do you draw meaning out of that?
2: Well, I try not to hinge it on elections. You know, um, it, it's one of the reasons that that essay, as it appears in the book, "The White Press," is actually the conclusion of of, of you know eight. You know, eight other essays, eight years, uh, and and more than that. You know, it seeks to draw out a, a much longer history. My analysis of this country would not have been much different if Hillary Clinton won. I mean, I I, I don't know because so that's it, 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 really it, it, interesting to me. Yeah, can yeah, can I, you
0: say more on that? Because you talk a lot about how the Obama. I mean, you you got more pessimistic as I went on, but how they did make you question, right? They did mm-hmm. they did seem like maybe something was different. If Clinton had won by six percentage points, you really feel you'd be in the same you feel like you'd be writing pretty much the same things
2: today? I think I would be. I think Because I, I don't know how different what I'm writing this year is what I was writing last year. I don't know how different I am from 2014 when I was writing the case for reparations or 2015 when I wrote Between the World and Me. I think that was the point where I reached some pretty, you know, and maybe even earlier, 2012, with, my, with, my, with uh, uh, um... Geez, I can't even remember that. Essay. Fear of a black president? Fear of a black president. Thank you. Um, at that I, point, I, I read your stuff real closely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ezra. At that point, I thought I had some conclusions, you know, uh, uh, about the country. Um, and so, I mean, even if Hillary Clinton had won, she might not have gotten another justice through. She would have been facing a recalcitrant Senate, uh, uh, a House, you know, that was also recalcitrant um, that hated her. Um, and there would be some need to explain that. I think, not from me, because there are other people who are better, you know. Uh, uh, I think who are more attuned to this and better at doing it. There would be a lot of gender critique um, of this, you know. That, that probably would have would have been good and 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 fair and and accurate. But, you know, my stuff isn't isn't necessarily rooted in, in Trump winning. Um, It's the very fact that he was even considered credible. And by credible, what I mean is, you know, running at, you know, relatively high popularity rates throughout the primary, actually able to win. See, that should be scary in and of itself, that he won the Republican primary. That should be a statement even in of itself. Um, It is, um, I think that was unthinkable in 2008. I don't think anybody would would have thought Donald Trump, if you had laid out the campaign that he ran. You know, what would have uh, thought that that was actually possible?
1: I mean, hell, it seemed unthinkable in 2015. It did. did. So let's pull out a Trump then,
0: because I think that's fair. I, I really felt reading this book that I understood something about your fundamental worldview that, that I had had trouble understanding, and it's been a, a sort of consistent part of the conversation you're having. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to try to get at, at this. So, so you talk in the book about pessimism um, and, and the idea of a pessimistic worldview or a black atheistic worldview. You were on Colbert the night before, we're, we're taping this interview, um, and there was kind of a, an exchange at the end where Colbert was like, you know, can you offer some hope? And you're like, I don't, I don't want to bullshit you. And I want to read a sort of a truncated quote to you because it, it sort of helped me understand what, what you're talking about here. You wrote in the book, in a paragraph that actually kind of took my breath away a bit, you wrote, any fair consideration of the depth and width of enslavement tempts insanity." You first conjure the crime that the generational destruction of human bodies, all of its related offenses. Then you try to imagine being an individual born among the remnants of that crime and watching people, at best denying their ability to address it, and at worst, denying that any crime occurred at all, even as their entire lives revolved around the fact of a robbery so large that it is written in our very names. And you can tell me if this is wrong, but that helped me understand this conversation, or I think it did, that you're having about hope and, uh, you know, whether the country is getting better. Because I think a lot of people sort of frame hope as improvement. Like any kind of sort Mm. of marginal improvement year Mm. by year, reduction Mm. in the black-white wealth gap, if we were seeing that, you know, reduction Mm. in mass incarceration, that's hope, right? Things are getting better as hope. The arc of history bending towards justice is hope. And it read to me reading this book, that what you're saying is you don't see any hope for actual justice. You don't see any hope for the sin of America to ever truly be addressed. America just keeps going on and maybe things get better and sometimes they get worse. and Maybe they even keep getting better. But that the actual crime committed is never going to be paid for. And that, that that's the center of sort of the argument that you're having with a political system that likes to measure things in terms of, you know, relative income rates five years from now.
2: You know, in the the abstract, what I would say is, I don't know. The problem is, I often end up having this conversation with people who, um, are by default optimistic about the future, so I end up having to, you know, chasten, you know, I end up being the chastener on it. But if you ask me in the absolute, do I, you know, it's just a difficult question. Let me put it like this. If you said, Tanahasi, is it your expectation for the rest of American history that it will have to grapple with white supremacy? Let me make that even more pointed. Is it your expectation that Black people in this country will, for the rest of this country's history, occupy some sort of lower rung in the hierarchy? It's not my expectation, but I wouldn't be surprised if it happened. There is a great deal of evidence, I think, that indicates that that's likely. And everything that argues against that happening, I think, is external. So let me let me um, sort of frame that. Moments of progress in African-American life in this country, and this may be true of any sort of civil rights uh, fight in this country, are almost always influenced by some sort of greater interest uh, among the larger population. So, Slavery does not end because the majority of white people get it in their heads that enslavement is morally wrong. Now, there were a number of white people who did think that, in fact. But the effort and the blood that it actually cost to get that done, to uproot it out of the society, only came when the nation was actually threatened, Uh, when its very existence was, in fact, actually threatened. And the minute it wasn't threatened, the kind of second slavery immediately descended over the country again. You can't think about the progress made in the civil rights movement without thinking about the threat of the Cold War uh, and what that meant, and and the need for America to project itself as as, as a beacon of freedom without the the, the ghosts of, of of Nazi Germany and how far you know white supremacy actually could go. You you can't think about it without the militants in the cities threatening to burn cities down and and the kind of pressure that that put on democratic politicians. What I'm saying is that moral suasion is, is, is rarely enough, and so if it, like it's worth trying to construct a world. What is the world in which we have a twenty-to-one wealth gap? Every nickel of wealth the average black family has, the average white family has a dollar. What is the world in which that wealth gap is closed? What what happens? What makes that possible? What does that look like? What is the process? And when you start talking about that amount of money. It strikes me that it's something pretty earth-shaking. Maybe something so large that it actually, you know, you find yourself in a country that's not even America anymore. The gap is huge. I mean, it's, I mean, it, and it's not like you you start like trying to measure this, you know, across levels. You know, it persists across education. It persists, you know, from high school dropouts to college graduates to Ivy League graduates. It, it is uh, pervasive. And when you try to, and it's old, by the way, too, it's old. And so when you try to imagine a world in which that gap is closed, I mean, that, shoo, I mean, what is that?
0: I think that people don't try to imagine that. I mean, I I really do think this. I think that it's a valuable conversation to try to pin down what people mean by, do you have hope? Are you optimistic?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that you and 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 you know you should tell it's i never want to ascribe opinions to to someone else so i'm just trying to describe what i understand or what i observe i think that you have actually pinned down in your head what would it mean to some degree at least for justice to be done for equality to be reached for this to no longer be a country that reflects white supremacy that that sort of in its objective metrics reflects a society built on white supremacy. And I think a lot of folks, I think the critique of that is a lot of folks are willing to take a lot more comfort in forms of progress than you are. That they, yeah, they they, they just, say, you know, oh, look, the things are so much better than they were in 1960, and 1960 was better than 1900, and, you know... Trump is obviously a setback, but there was an African American president, and you know there are all these discrete indicators, and so things are are, are moving in the right direction. And shouldn't that make one hopeful? And so, so I would yeah. say
2: two. I would say two things to that. Obviously, you know this experience looms large, you know, uh, in the West. But what if one took, say, the long view, of the experience of European Jewry, in in Europe? Look at Jewish experience there. What would you find? You probably would find moments when things look really, really, you know, look better, you know, especially depending on what, what country you were talking about. Um, you'd find high points and low points, and you probably find a, a persistent pattern of anti Semitism interlaced all the way through there. And then you get to this point where you had a Holocaust, right? You have some 80, 90% European Jews killed. I mean, there's a kind of chaos in that, you know, which says that you can have progress until you don't. Let me uh, allude to something even more specific than that. The notion that since 1968, when we had that, you know, civil rights legislation, that things are necessarily better. I mean, what if I told you that relative to white income, black income has not changed? What if I told you that in 1968, we had something on the order of, and I'm just using a a relatively low round number, I don't have a hard number in front of me, but somewhere around 100 to 120 per 100,000 Americans incarcerated. And today we have something on the order of 700. And that's way, way out of whack with the rest of the world and that Black people, uh, Black men specifically, make up an an uncomfortable uh, percentage of that number. how are you going to get back from 700 per 100,000 to 100, 120? Well, how does that happen? I mean, we're not even talking about cut in half. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're talking about, and people have forgotten. They've forgotten what the world looked like only 40 years ago. And it's become normal. I, I don't i don't know how you get back there. I just don't. I hope we do. You know, as Stephen said, I hope I'm wrong. You know, um, but this, this is, these are not, you know, small things, um, and even the vocabulary with you know nonviolent drug—that's not going to get you there. That's not going to get you there. You got some really hard, difficult questions. You know that you have to address yourself to, and I don't even see people really you know addressing themselves to the question.
0: I've been obsessed um, with something that Brian Stevenson says that I heard him say uh, in a speech ahead of the the Equal Justice Initiative, where he went to Germany to give a speech about American death penalty. And a, a woman there stood up and said, well, we can never have the death penalty in Germany. And he said, well, why not? And she said, well, the state doesn't have the authority to kill right, like to kill. that here. Mm-hmm. And, and he said then, and I don't know, something about this really brought me up short. He said, you know, imagine if today Germany was locking up and executing Jews. <laughs> In wildly disproportionate numbers. Mm. Mm. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like imagine if they were. You know, yeah. I mean, you you would not look at that from afar and say, I bet nothing fishy's going on there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't and I don't think most people, in fact, I know, having traveled a little bit now, look at America and say nothing fishy is going on there. I mean, we say it within our politics, but uh, people who see us, they know. You know, it's obvious. Evan Osnos had this piece on North Korea. <laughs> North Korea, right? And there's a moment in that piece where he's with, you know, whoever's been assigned to him in, in North Korea. And Charlottesville is on the news in North Korea. You know, probably, you know, propagandized and everything. And he says, this is what you want to do to us. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like these North Koreans, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, who, who can see it? You know, e- even in, you know, a state of, you know, where, where information is not as widely available. But I mean, there's something to that.
0: But but that, I think this is a, an interesting way of merging our, our two conversations here, because it does ask this question of what, what would it mean for things to be better? Because we've sort of flipped between a lot of different measures of what better can mean here, right? There's cultural power which we've sort of agreed at a different point in the conversation has shifted at least a little bit, representational power on television, who holds the White House, who hosts the Oscars. There's, you know, median incomes. There's the wealth gap. There's incarceration. There's share of CEOs and boards of directors. I mean, mm. modern society is super complex. Um, and there are a million ways for for people to be going up and down. And, and I do wonder what... I mean, when I hear you say that, that this is a country that, you know, at its soul has, has white supremacy, how would you know if that were no longer true? Not of anybody, right? It's a, it's a big country. Like, how would you know? What would you be looking to be true to say that this is no longer a country that looks like a country that believes in white supremacy?
2: I mean, the easiest thing for me to say is that if there were no wealth gap. If there were no, I mean, that would, immediate, that would be the immediate tell for me. I think you'd have a hard time making an argument if that were the case. Why the wealth gap? I, you said why the wealth gap? Yeah, why is that the one you because choose? Because so much is implicit in that. There's, there's so much that goes... When you have wealth, you have a, a safety net. That's the first thing. I mean, many of the stressors that you know I identify... See, Because it's not just that individual Black families don't have much wealth. It's that individual Black families without wealth almost totally live around other Black families without wealth. And so it's like, you, you, you know, there's a kind of webbing that happens wherein all the social sort of benefits that come from having wealth, uh, all the cultural benefits that come from having all the access that you can get who you know, you're cut off when you're black. In other words, you're not individually, you know, without wealth and then around other people who you might meet, who you might marry, who you might talk to, who you might form families with, deep friendships with, who themselves have wealth. In fact, you're around other people who are without what I am at this moment, you know, um, wow, I might be the wealthiest person in my family's history. I mean, I, I'm, I'm struggling to, to think about, you know, who, who that would be. And when me and my wife, my wife and I, when we met, you know, we came from a background where, you know, folks didn't even have enough money to pay college tuition. That just wasn't really a possible thing. They, they, could, they could beg, borrow, you know, in my case, to get it done. But it just... Wasn't, and not only was not possible, we didn't really know people for whom it was possible for. That was not just my individual experience. It was my collective experience. So now, I, you know, I find myself on a different level. Am I surrounded by other Black people, you know, who are like that? No. Is there, is there a possibility of us then, you know, building things collectively, you know, with our wealth and then going to do, you know, something else? No, not, not really, because those people are few and far between. It's the exact opposite for white people, which is not to say every white person is wealthy. I, I don't want to, you know, mischaracterize it. But even the average white working class individual tends to have more wealth, not just than the average black working class person, but the average, you know, a black person of, of significantly higher income. Um, and so what that means is the power, you know, really to construct wealth. And and to me, I think if that were the case, if you did not have a wealth gap, you probably would be looking at a much more integrated America. I just think that would be, I just think it would be a totally, totally different country.
0: I think that one thing that's interesting about that, because... We're sort of talking. The question I asked you was about, you know, how would you know if the country didn't have this ideology, right? If it wasn't based on this ideology, and 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 you went to something that's very material. And I think something that's interesting about that is the way in which we come up with the stories necessary to justify the outcomes we have and that we want. And one of the the things that that, that you know scholars of race will, will argue is that you know a lot of racism is there to justify the economic outcomes we have mm-hmm. a lot of junk science is there to justify the economic outcomes we have the the carceral outcomes we have the social outcomes we have you know you what part of a real theme of the first third of your book is your struggle with respectability politics that that mm-hmm. Obama offers that Bill Cosby offered and a lot of that it seems to me is you're fighting an effort justified to ideologically justify the economic condition of black communities with an ideology that you know I mean Donald Trump is somebody who doesn't pass any respectability politics test anywhere but gets to mm-hmm. be president right and, and that that feel that interplay feels like an important part of this to me that one reason I, I sort of agree with you on 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 wealth gap is that I think that America is a place, partly because it's such a capitalistic country, where our ideology often, I mean, it's both cause and effect, but it often flows as effect from our economic, like, reality. Mm -hmm. And so long as economic reality is as tilted as it is, we will always come up with ideologies to support why that is, why that's a natural meritocratic outcome of our, you know, wonderful society.
2: Right. And, and you know, the obvious thing to say, which I think any leftist would say who's listening to this, uh, is to go back to what I said earlier. What, what kind of world are you imagining in which you don't have that gap? Uh, and they would probably make the critique <laughs> that you're talking about a world with a very, very different economic theory. Yeah. You know, and that seems pretty obvious, too.
0: But, but that gets to something that you talk about in in the first white president, where you, you say, and I think there's something to this, that the, the left would much rather have a discussion about class struggle
2: mm-hmm. and
0: the theory that, that that might bring in the white working class instead of about racist struggles. And, and so I guess one question there is that if some of this flows from economics, I mean, does that give you pause on that? Is there, I think that you sometimes say there's not a way to fix the economy without fixing America's sort of soul on race and and they would say there's not a way to fix america's soul on race without really radically revising how economic relations happen
2: yeah i guess the difference between uh myself and them is i'm not sure that they're wrong (laughs) i'm not sure that they're wrong i mean i I don't it's not that i think reparations would fix broad inequality in this country i i I don't think that I i don't think decarceration for instance is the the immediate fix, you know, in the way that folks who think... See, it's possible for me to imagine a revised economy and Black people and white supremacy still existing. It's very possible for me to imagine that, you know? Now, it may be that, you know, you need a revised economy ultimately for white supremacy not to exist, but I don't think... It's not ergo, if we get rid of capitalism, therefore there will not be this. Barbara Tuchman has this great book, A Distant Mirror, and she talks about how in feudal society, the names and the way people would uh, 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 deal with what they called uh, villainage, peons, the peasants, the serfs. And they came up with things that sounded curiously enough like race. The way they described them, the dehumanizing aspect of it. This is a, in, in a pre-capitalist economy. You know? And so it, it's not clear to me that if you get rid of that, you necessarily then get rid of racism. That, that's my quote. I think you know the argument you know, about an unrestrained, you know, market capitalism stands on its own. <laughs> you know, I think it it should make its own, own own merits, and I think it can make its its own merits. But when you come to me and say this necessarily, you know, will heal our racism, all I have to do, from my perspective, is point to you, you know, over to Europe, where I've, you know, talked to, you know, several people, you know, are members of, of groups of people of color over there, where you definitely have a stronger safety net, where you definitely have workers who have better protections, and yet the same sort of questions of racism persist. They persist. If you look at an earlier point in, in American history, I mean, the, 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 the person that all, you know, progressives in the left always point to, you know, the reign of Roosevelt. And, you know, the, the, the tell is that you couldn't do that without white supremacy. So the broader question is, can you construct a world that has, you know, a, a, a respect you know, for human life and and, and dignity, and all the ways that I think you know uh, most folks on the left want, and it shows healthcare as a right, and not have this kind of hierarchy. That that to me is a really, really you know profound question. I'm not suggesting that you can't, but I am suggesting it would be pre- pretty revolutionary. I haven't seen it in in existence yet.
0: How do you think about the difference between, or the tension maybe between justice and equality, the the difference between. A society where perhaps there's not a wealth gap or there's vastly closed one versus a society where there's been some kind of justice, some kind of reckoning. These feel to me like they're both ideas that are present in your work, but but, the, but that they're different and you can imagine them maybe existing without each other or maybe maybe you can't.
2: Yeah, I can. You know, um, I went through like this heavy French Revolution period while I was reading you know, all these books about the French Revolution. And, and in one level, I was like horrified, <laughs> you know, by, the, you know, like it was like, I was reading about like the execution, you know, of the king and, and Mary. And I was horrified. I was actually horrified, you know, and then horrified even more about, you know, so much of the killing that came afterwards. And I was in Paris one summer and I went out to this little town called Fontainebleau. And in Fontainebleau, there is the most gaudiest castle you ever want to see. I mean, it looks like something Trump would build. It is obscene. And you see that people were doing this, you know, building this castle, you know, with folks starving in the cities, on the countryside, you know, all this, and, and people were hoarding this well, I've never been to Versailles, but apparently Versailles is like that too. And you begin to understand, you know what I mean? Like you really, really begin to understand, you know, what I would see, um, as unjust violence, but done in the name of equalizing things. You know? Um, so no, I, I think there's great tension. I feel like, and I don't know this to be true, I mean, Ezra, honestly, I'm, I'm kind of theorizing here, but it's very easy for me to see myself looking at the processes, like, being contemporary with the processes that might make for an equal world, more equality. And maybe the complete abolition, you know, of, of, of race as a construct, because I think it only exists in the presence of inequality. And being horrified by the process, I and mean, maybe even attacking the process, you know, um, because I think these things don't tend to happen peacefully. You know, uh, the hope is that the United States will find some sort of way to do this in a, in, in a civilized manner. Um, th- that that's not the history, though.
0: That's a that's a. I don't want to say a scary thought. I mean, it is, but it's also a. I don't know. It, it, it's. Something you said a bit ago when you were talking about the ways in which things can get radically worse, the ways in which if you were right in the history of of European Jewry, things look bad and they look bad and they look bad, you know, but sort of normal. And then at some point, they are worse than you could possibly imagine. Yeah, I think that one of the hard things right now is a lot of reckoning with the idea that chaos is near at hand than maybe people expect. I mean, what, what you just said, it sounds, honestly, like a lot to me, it sounds radical to me. Mm-hmm. And then I think, well, Donald Trump did just get elected and he's sending Rocket Man tweets and we did right. just see Charlottesville. Right. And I don't know, I mean, how much would you need? It wasn't that long ago that we had riots in this country. I mean, that's right. in, within my lifetime. I grew up mm-hmm. in Southern California. I was, I was there during the LA riots.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I I don't know. I I think this is something that I am just personally struggling with a lot right now, which is just the boundaries of what seems possible. I'm not sure they even really exist in the way I thought they did before. I I don't want to say I had a kind of like Fukuyama end of history approach to things. Yeah. But I thought that the guardrails were pretty well established. And now it feels to me, you know, like you got to assume that in any given moment, you know, any given year there's some two, three, 5% chance of real bad outcomes. And most years we escape them. But I don't know. You look back at the 20th century, we had some real fucking terrible stuff happen. We did. Uh, we did. It's probably unlikely the 21st century is going to just be this arc bending towards justice. Certainly sure. hasn't been so far. And, and and so what you say there, I mean, whether it, it went towards equality or away from equality, just that ability to sit it, with imagination, of an America that falls back into violence, or maybe falls back into a different kind of violence, because I don't want to pretend there hasn't been violence in the in the interim here. That's that's a that's a heavy thing to wear.
2: Yeah, no, it is. But all it means is that we're back within human history. Yeah, I mean, we're just back within. I mean, when have we not? I don't want to be like apocalyptic and, and dramatic, but it, you know. If you think about the period, you know, like, uh, all the time, I mean, even long before the Civil War, not long, but before the Civil War, Thomas Jefferson is fearing a Civil War, which was an apocalyptic event, by the way. I mean, it, it really, I mean, you're talking about 20% of, of, of military age white men being killed in the South, Southern white men, you know, being killed. You're talking about more more death than all American wars combined happening in five quick years. You know, I mean, that was a, 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 an apocalyptic you know, events so much so that even black people at that time, you know, viewed it as such. You know, viewed it as you know as the coming of the Lord. If you're black, you know, during the period of, of redemption, afterwards, where bodies are just you know piling up, I mean, just 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 piling up. I don't I don't know if this is still true at this point, but I know as recently as five ten years ago, you know, the greatest you know uh, movement of of homegrown terrorism was still white supremacist violence. You know, if you took the the the, the full Sweep up it. If you're FDR, you know, when he comes into office during the Great Depression, you know, people say he saved, or his his advisor said he saved capitals. I mean, people actually were really, really scared. JFK was really, really scared. I just finished this biography on Jefferson. And I believe it's him and Adams that are exchanging letters, and they're worried. They don't think this experiment is actually going to last, you know, because they feel like, you know, the virtue of the populace is not, you know, what it should be. So, I mean, the question to ask is, what right do we ever have to feel that we escaped this? That we, you know, somehow defied the the laws of history? If some sort of nuclear incident happens, and again, I, I, don't, I, I, I hesitate to talk like this. I don't want it to come off like I'm being trivial with something that would actually be really, really bad. But who would be surprised?
0: Well, this is... So I'm writing a piece right now about impeachment and about this question of if we... Could impeach Donald Trump, but decide whether he got the votes, should mm-hmm. we? And and the reason I'm writing the piece is I keep having this thought that I don't know, if there was a nuclear exchange and three million people die, and future historians are like, why did you, you American 2017, do nothing. Do nothing. While well, this guy was tweeting Rocket Man right. provocations at the single most nothing. irrational leader in the world, except for himself, what what warning did you need that you didn't have? Mm-hmm. All of you were talking about this. The Republican Party knew. I mean, I've had Republican aides say, "If we escape a nuclear war and get Gorsuch in, we're going to count this one as a win." I mean, they 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 know. Why did you do nothing? And we're going to say, "Well, imp- impeachment seems like a real big deal." Like, it's tough. Like, it's, you know, you don't want to do that too lightly. I I don't think a country that had a tragic imagination, or even just honestly, like, a historical imagination about itself, would let Donald Trump stay in power.
2: I don't think so. And I think, honestly, I think, actually, when people search for the difference between us and France, I think it's that. I think that's the difference. You know, uh, France was actually occupied. (laughs) I mean, repeatedly, by the way, like, like I'm talking about obviously in the 20th century, you know, during World War II. But this is, you know, like when you think about Europe and, and I, I want to be really clear here because I'm not saying that they're perfect and wise and everything is OK. there. But this is a country that had, you know, something like, you know, the 30 years war. You know, where people are just, you know, killing and burning and raping, you know, all all through Germany, World War II, where France was actually, where the the occupation is actually, like, there are people alive today who remember the occupation. They remember, you know, it's not a war that they went over there and fought. It was actually fought, you know, right on their territory. And, and like, it's almost as if we can't imagine it getting that bad. Like, we just, we, we lack the capacity, as you said, the tragic capacity. Uh, to imagine it getting that bad. I, not out of any reasons of, of of prejudice or anything, want to exempt Black people from that, though. Because I think the experience of enslavement, of racist terrorism, does give you that. I think that does. I think you do have that, you know what I mean? Because of the stories that have come down, you know, through the years directly to you.
0: I buy that. I mean, the the thing that seems to me to be hard there is that, We exist in this age that, while it hasn't gone bad the way it went bad in World War II, it is this age of just incredible tail risk, Mm -hmm. right? The financial crisis, Brexit, Donald Trump, and then you look around and and I don't get it. On some level, the stock market is booming, right? Don't like this is a space it is all about pricing risk and it's just fine it doesn't seem to care about any of this like that
2: that is scary to me
0: but that to me like when there's no nobody seems to be really thinking that there is such a desire to make everything okay Mm -hmm. there is such a desire even with trump i mean you see it all the time he has to work so hard to keep the press from just normalizing the whole thing like he has to work on a day-to-day basis right. to keep the press from being like, aha, he has finally become president right. now.
2: Right, <laughs> right. I mean, he
0: like he has got to go to Puerto Rico and say, You guys fucked up our budget. Did you know that? Right,
2: right. Like he right, like right. he
0: has got to do things that right. I mean, it's a daily struggle to to keep the media from, you know, just saying like, okay, like John Kelly's got it all under control. Right. I, I have this a bit in me. I'm I'm someone who I think orients towards like has an equilibrium of things are gonna be all right. But it's really a war with my analytical side because it yeah. doesn't look like you get to it doesn't look like you get to trust that
2: no no, no and things probably will be all right I mean they probably will you know what I mean <laughs> probably you know, but it's that 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 cataclysmic risk that 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 you're running that um i I, I don't know man I don't know I, I think um we you know as I said just are not aware I mean the um level of um inequality, you know, in this country, you know, and um, the fact that, you know, as you said, you had the stock market booming, but that's not really, you know, uh, as they say, trickling down, you know, to folks in terms of the employment market um, and in terms of good quality jobs, you know, not just jobs with good quality. I know that, you know, employment is, is, unemployment is relatively low right now, but the quality of jobs that folks are able able to get, the the, the feeling, you know, of um, feeling good about the kind of work uh, you have not just having work, I think this was something that was sort of missed in the last uh, presidential campaign, too. I think Donald Trump gave folks a sense of meaning about their work, about being American, as opposed to um, oh, you're, you know you're not a coal miner anymore, but you can get this job being a computer programmer. You know there's a sense of meaning attached to the idea of being a coal miner, you know, and the notion of going back to that, the the inability to find something real. Uh, to fill in with that and how that's disconnected from so many of our economic indicators. That is scary. And if if I, you know, one other thing to throw into this, there was a column by Michelle Goldberg in The Times, I believe earlier, about a week ago. And the point was the idea of minority rule, which I don't think people are taking as seriously as they should. With the things already inbuilt into the, the, the Constitution the way they are, with the fact of uh, um, this sort of fake war against voter fraud, uh, with all of the shenanigans around redistricting. I mean, you you really, you know, when you put the the fact of economic life together, you know, with the fact of, you know, who gets to participate and who's going to get to participate in the electoral process as we go forward, it's scary, man. It's really, really scary.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, I need to go and read Michelle's piece. Uh, This is a piece I'm, Another piece I'm sort of working on now that I'm editor at large and have more time to write, <laughs> uh, which has been nice. Um, write your book. I am going to say that I'm, every time. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I'm, 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 uh, I hear you. Uh, but there is the way the American economy works and the, where, the way the American political system work are increasingly at war. The American economy is increasingly concentrated. Hillary Clinton won fewer counties by a lot Than any winning popular vote winning candidate ever. Mm. I mean, Mm. she won hundreds fewer counties than Mm. Obama. I I don't have the Mm. numbers at my fingertips here, Mm. but it was big. And yet, the counties she won accounted for a huge percentage of economic output in this country. Probably, Mm. again, more than any. One has ever, I mean, more than any Democrat has ever won, very likely. Uh, Mm -hmm. Reagan, when he won like everything, probably won more. Mm -hmm. But so she had a very, very geographically small popular vote margin. Um, Even though she still won the popular vote, she had a huge, huge, huge economic output margin. And yet our political system is built to advantage land. It's Mm. built to advantage, like, people living spread out. And so what happens when you have increasing resentment from the people who do not live in these small, hyperproductive, hyperrich pockets? That is a kind of resentment and a kind of social friction that is built to undermine the foundation of our political system and its legitimacy.
2: And we're in it. Yeah, and you, and then you pile into that, you know, which may not, you know, be that big of a national factor, but I see it all the time. that Even within those pockets, there's broad inequality. You walk through a city like Washington, D.C., walk through Brooklyn, you know what I mean? And, and and you see the difference, you know, in terms of how people, even within those locales, are actually living themselves. You know, it's not the case that everybody living there is, you know, wealthier or, you know, has, you know, more economic prosperity than the folks who are living out, out on the land. But that, you know, that vector over top of it just... Uh, I don't know. This has been all thoroughly, thoroughly depressing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's funny how many of my guests say that. Uh, well, let, let me ask you about a different piece of this, in, which I think is less depressing. Sure, um, sure. Much more of the book than I had expected is actually about you as a writer mm-hmm. and the way you've developed as a writer and the way your voice has developed as a writer. And I was fascinated by how much you compare your writing to music.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How much you think about it as having a rhythm, a, you mm-hmm. know, a blues with the dirtiest beat you've ever heard.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When you say that, like, how does that play out when you're actually writing an 8,000-word piece?
2: Oh, I can tell you. When I yeah. wrote uh, My President Was Black, I kept playing Marvin Gaye. And I kept playing Marvin Gaye because when I listen, you know, to an album like like uh Let's Get It On, it has an emotional effect that is beyond the words that he's actually using. Like, I I, have, I understand on one level what he's saying, but it achieves something that I can't really put in words. I, I don't have music, but I try to conjure in the reader a feeling similar to that, a feeling... Um, so I would listen to um, Distant Lover, for instance. And if you listen to Distant Lover, it's this deeply plaintive just depressing of a guy who's lost something that, you know, he, he thought was, you know, particular and original. And the words are fine, but there's a kind of emotion that's charged in there. And when Barack Obama was leaving, before I even knew Trump actually had won, but when Barack Obama was leaving, like, that was the feeling. Like, I thought about Black people in an era of Obama and all of what that cultural power that we talked about meant to them and to lose that. And I thought, that's the kind of feeling, you know, I, I, I want to aim for. So that's not in opposition to the actual logic of the piece, right? You know, like you, you try to organize, you know, uh, the logic of the piece correctly. Um, because, you know, the emotion means nothing if it's not there. But then on top of that, you really want to achieve a level of almost wordless emotion in in, in the reader. You know, for me, um, my part in, in in this struggle, my part to make a better world is not simply to have people pick up my work and say, well, all the facts seem correct. I think this is right, and then move on with their lives. My job is to bring across the emotion, to make them feel a certain way, to haunt them, you know, to make it hard to sleep. You know, make it so when they when they wake up in the morning, that's what they're thinking about, to make it so that they can't stop talking about the thing to, 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 the, to their friends. That, that's, like, um, my job. It, it's got to, you know, the head has to be there, but it actually has to reach deeper in a particular way. I, I don't want it to ever be abstract to people. I don't want that, you know, like, when I did the case for reparations, I was like, you know, this has to be the exact opposite of an 800-word New York Times column arguing for reparations. It can't, can't be that. It can't be that. It can't be, feel like, you know, conversation that you have over drinks. It's got to feel deeper, you know, it's got to, f- you know, just have a kind of, you got to feel all of the robbery and plunder that I'm talking about in that piece. You got to really, really feel it like it happened to you, like it happened, like Clive Ross was your grandfather or something. Like it's part of you because it is part of you if you're American, you know. And so the music I find is the thing I, I turn to to try to help me get that across.
0: Thomas Goats, thank you very much.
2: Thanks for having me, Ashwin.
0: Thank you as always for listening. Thank you to Tanahasi for for taking the time. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you to my producer Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll
1: be back next week. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing.